0: The impossible image, the type of uh, fabulation, critical fabulation, as Hartman might say, or as Toni Morrison might talk about, and as a necessary fiction, like all these things were so important for me to be able to claim a type of story, to position myself somewhere and to intervene into an archive that where so much of myself and people around me were, were absent.
1: Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. Curator on the Go podcast is your passport to a curated journey through the fascinating realm of art and culture. Hosted by Toronto-based art curator Lisa Zhurkovskaya, a.k.a. Curator on the Go, this podcast celebrates diversity and inclusivity within the art world by featuring a captivating blend of discussions, stories, and interviews with artists and art professionals from various cultural backgrounds and perspectives. Here's a bit from Lisa herself. Curator on the Go podcast is the perfect blend of art appreciation, education, and entertainment. With each episode, you embark on a new adventure, delving into the diverse and inspiring practices of guest speakers that include artists, curators, and individuals with unique perspectives on art. These guests bring fresh insights and experiences to each episode. I invite you to be part of the Curator on the Go community, where artists, art lovers, and enthusiasts come together to celebrate creativity in all its forms. Now back to the episode. For many artists, there's literally no separation between their work and the communities in which they belong. Working in relation, these artists situate their artistic practices within and alongside the traditions, spaces, and stories that nourish and support their creativity. This sense of rootedness, responsibility, and connection to the community leads to all kinds of exciting possibilities. Award-winning artist, writer, and curator, Anique Jordan looks to answer the question of possibility in everything she creates. Working for over a decade at the crossroad of community economic development and art, Jordan's practice stems from, and returns to, the communities that inform it. As an artist, Jordan's work plays with the foundations of traditional Trinidadian carnival and the theory of hauntology challenging historical narratives, and creating what she calls impossible images. Anik, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So you are regarded as a multidisciplinary artist, very much grounded in community, working in relation with the people, places, and traditions that inform your work. Can you tell me how your practice came to be shaped in this way?
0: Well, I think I just always grew up surrounded by people who were not just thinking of themselves or of their immediate environments, but always thinking about what's happening with their neighbor or what's happening within their community or with the kids in their community. When I was younger, my mom put my brother and I in dance, in like Afro-Caribbean dance, like a dance program that was run by a group of older Caribbean, Trinidadian, primarily women. And through that program, we'd see people, they would raise funds for things. They would um, involve the community in very particular ways. And I grew through that by being mentored by a group of older, like young girls at the time who really showed me what it was like and what um, what it meant to reach out past like ourselves and to give back to our own communities. And I saw that also with my mom, like my mom growing up, If women on our street were like walking to the bus stop or, you know, walking, like taking the bus back from Kennedy Station or something that to the neighborhood, she would pick them up and like drop them off somewhere closer or drop them home or I would see her make food and bring it to people that were like elders who might've been in the hospital at the time or friends, family. So I was kind of always surrounded by people who were showing me what it meant to support a community and to return whatever it is that you do back to the community. It's never been something that was like taught to me explicitly as, you know, this is how you, you carry yourself. This is how you behave, but it was sort of modeled and, and everything that I did. And, Because I grew up in Scarborough, I also was surrounded by a lot of youth workers who were constantly showing young people that they could be leaders in their community and that we have impact and that our voices are important. And so I sort of just grew up in an environment that was teaching me all the time that what I do has a huge impact on what happens in my community, what happens in my community has an impact on me. And therefore, we're in this relationship where returning to each other is a must for things Mm -hmm. to function.
1: (laughs) That's wonderful. Tell me how you link that then to your artistic practice, because you're, you're sort of describing a, a milieu, uh, an environment that's focused on collectivity, on care, on mm-hmm. mutual support and aid. When you start to think of a, a career in art, how did you make that connection then to what you were sort of raised in?
0: Like, so As a young person, I was mentored by a lot of artists. Um, younger or like teenage age people in in Scarborough or in Malvern. And then so as I grew up, I started doing the same types of things. And so at the time, it actually, one of my best friends and I started working with a group of mentors who had run a magazine in Scarborough that still exists called Urbanology Magazine. And we were being mentored to learn how to develop our own magazine that was like by youth for youth. And we so we started right. this this little magazine called Steps, which stood for showcasing the endless possibilities of Scarborough. And it ran a, a couple of years of, I think it's like five of us. It kind of switched after a few years, but about a group of us that were getting together, that learning how to, use what was like really coming out of hip hop at the time because urbanology was based in a lot of the principles of hip hop and thinking about how we can reach out to our community to gather stories, to talk about art that was happening, design trends, to celebrate businesses. And from that, my best friend and I, Carla, um, we started really being interested in thinking about how we can um, support young people who were sort of going from what was called at the time moving from bandanas to business cards right. <laughs> and we were really interested in like how we can support that that emergence of all these youth led businesses that were coming up not just in Scarborough but in the West End as well and that is what led me towards working in community economic development so thinking about small businesses within the communities how business becomes not just um, like a craft or a hobby or a means of, of survival but also something that is sacred that's something that's really important and close to people, right? And so we started really thinking about business in that way and looking at young people using different principles of business and of like turning what they have into something that they need. And that sort of expanded for me beyond just Scarborough and beyond just that organization that my friend and I were running and towards thinking about that in a more international space. So I went back to school and I studied international development and I started thinking about... The ways that like women would use crafts as a form of getting their own sort of means of of, of income that's away from right. their partners or that is in addition to what they might have been making if they worked like a nine to five job. Um, I started working in different places around the world, sort of just doing that type of work. And and in doing that work, that's sort of what led me towards thinking about it uh, from multiple perspectives. So Yeah. So I started off with this sort of urban planning, community economic development interest, and it became really clear that there was a limit to being able to understand or talk about the ways that people survive that is not just about making money. That is not just about something that's tangible, but there are so many intangible things that that field of community economic development couldn't grasp with. So like thinking about culture, thinking about arts, thinking about um, stories that are passed down, thinking about survival strategies that are taught between um, young people and, and their elders our communities and the land and stories that are just sort of funneled through our bodies and through the ways that our customs and the ways that we carry ourselves. And art was the only way that I really could grapple with that thing that felt so unseen in many other ways. And so that's sort of how I started thinking about working as an artist, trying to find ways to to visualize that.
1: That's an amazing and very interesting background. It's one of the things that I really admire in your practice is how diverse it is and how it comes from this, I'll say, non-traditional origin around economic development, thinking through business, and and then you arrive at art. Um, I'm wondering what were some main takeaways through that work you did in African descendant communities? What were some of the key learnings that you took away?
0: One thing I remember is that um, I was working with this elder gentleman We were working in Barbados on a lower income housing project and we were talking about ways that we can uh, use popular education and theater to teach people how their houses are being built and how, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) like it sounds really lofty, but like how the global economy impacts the cost of of the houses that they were being built. Because we were building these houses um, in an area called Lower Burnie in Barbados that was mainly swampy ground. And it was a time where the global economy was shifting so much that the price of steel was going up on a weekly basis. So the cost of mm-hmm. owning their home kept on increasing. And so we wanted to be able to put the power back into people, to give them the tools to be able to understand what's happening, speak back to contractors, talk to the government, because it was a government-funded project, um, and advocate for themselves. And that project, that like desire to figure out how to how to teach people these skills came out of theater. Mm-hmm. So that company that I was working with, uh, I wouldn't call it a company, but more so like a, a community based organization was doing both this housing project where they had this contract with the government to help people um, work on developing their homes and, they were also a theater company so it was this crazy wow. thing where <laughs> i was watching right in front of me this emergence of this government program that feels so disconnected from any sort of arts-based anything or mm-hmm. creative you know ways of thinking but the only way that we can find to really involve people properly and have ownership over the development of their own house and their newly um, like granted properties or whatever was through theater through performance and through involvement people with the theater and so it gave people a type of language and and particular insight that they would not have been able to get just by sitting down for a workshop or just listening to something from like a distance that really embodied for them like the process of going through this ownership of this place and the things that are globally impacting it and like the social justice sort of conversation that needed to happen around that
1: that's how you arrive at art makes a lot of sense yeah Your practice um, is often lens-based, but also includes performance and other mediums, and you've been attracted to, or you've at least discussed this concept of hauntology. I wondered if you could explain what that is and why you're drawn to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, hauntology has been written about in many different ways. The way that I was first drawn to it was through the writing of Avery Gordon, who writes who has a text called Ghostly Matters. And that's that's the first instance where I started to think about theorizing around hauntology. But when I first started seeing hauntology was when I went back to Trinidad, this was 2015, and I started documenting self-portraits of myself in these different sites around the area that my family grew up in. And this was the first moment that I was starting to actively move away from thinking about community economic development towards thinking about things that are invisible or or intangible. And it was this bridging moment where I asked women in my family this question of survival, like, how have you survived? How did you survive? How do you understand survival? And they would tell me all these stories and none of them had to do with money. (laughs) You know, none Mm -hmm. of them had to do with these things that I thought was so necessary for me to be like considering when I as like a student thinking about economic development, they all had to do with these ways of relating to the land, of relating to people, of relationships. So those stories led me towards taking, I started taking self-portraits at all these different sites around Trinidad that were coming out of the locations that the stories were housed in. And when I came back to Toronto and I started showing some of my mentors and friends, these images, they, everyone was like, oh, is this your, are these your grandparents? Is this your great grandmother? Like, where is this Mm -hmm. from? It's so, it's so airy. It's so haunting. And that's when I started to think about this idea of like hauntology. I was introduced to it by my then former professor and ongoing mentor, Honor Ford Smith, who's a Jamaican theater worker she introduced me to the idea and I started thinking about hauntology as this thing that sort of resists temporality that is neither here nor there, but is constantly something that we live with. And, but Mm -hmm. in many ways when it's written about people talk about it as something that is that, holds on to sites of violence and trauma mm-hmm. but i think about hauntology is also a place that can teach us survival strategies so i've always kind of used this example of like a black boy a black like young man leaving his home with his hood on and his mother mm-hmm. like stops him to pull his hood off and right. it that is a part of the the trauma of what's possible but she's also like relaying to this person like teaching him these survival strategies in a world that sees him constantly as being the site of this source of danger or fear or all these different things so in a way it's like a way to like illustrate you know like what you're going out to isn't going to see you the same way that I see you and here here is me showing you how to protect how I'm protecting you so like in the simplest of terms right and so when I think about what haunts us. I am thinking about these ideas of like slavery and displacement and Mm -hmm. colonization, but I'm also thinking about the ways that we've learned to survive through that in spite of it and being able to create communities and to being able to ensure that our children survive and are brilliant and are loving and all these different things that come out of our community in spite of all the violences that we have to also respond to. So that's sort of those ideas.
1: And I'm sure Gordon could be put in conversation with Sadia Hartman's notion of, of the afterlife of of slavery, which Absolutely. you know picks up on some of, of what you've just shared. You and I have a connection to Scarborough, and I know that you've been critical in the past a little bit around the so called discovery of the cool Scarborough a few years ago, as you know, everyone started talking about Scarborough and um how you know all these amazing artists are from there, et cetera as, as though it was something new. Are you still connected there in scarborough and and how did that unique Scarborough experience inform who you are today as an artist?
0: <laughs> That's so funny <laughs> the the discovery
1: <laughs> yeah, the so called um, discovery. <laughs>
0: Well, Toronto has this funny way of believing that everything that's cool happens in the downtown core. Right. <laughs> well, meanwhile, it's mining from the West End and the East End yes. to create that, right? So, Absolutely. I mean, I think if you grow up in Toronto, you're going to have a sense of that. But if you don't, like that kind of sucks for you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like... <laughs> but not just Scarborough, like I think of Scarborough as a type of, uh, like a location that we see in many different places, right? Like to me, mm-hmm. the West End is like a quote unquote type of Scarborough, like in the way that it's a community that is constantly being thought of as a place of, in the past at least, as a place of like violence or low income or all these different like markers that say that this place is a place that is no good. And, but in the same time, Scarborough is a place where so many talent shows, Scar- Scarborough on the West End, where so many young people grew up going through these talent shows and now are major actors, yes. right? Winning Before. Emmys yes. and like at the Junos and like doing all these incredible things that we turn to as symbols of Toronto, but they come out of these places that nobody wanted to look to to begin with. And even now, when I think I work primarily as a visual artist, I'm not in like... Uh, you know, like theater or acting or music or whatever. So mm-hmm. when I think about the visual arts scene, I don't even think there are any galleries. Okay, uh, there is a newer one, <laughs> but there are very <laughs> few spaces where you can go and see visual arts, both in the East and the West, the, the furthest West ends of the city. So, yes. you know, like so much of the culture is, is concentrated in the downtown core where the resources end up being stifled and where so many of the things that we claim to be... A, proud of as Torontonians get labeled as coming from a really particular space and everything that we as a broader community say are, are no good are apparently in the East and the West ends of the city. And so I'm always sort of like struck by this idea because so much of what we are proud of is actually coming from those very places. And so when I think about Scarborough and I see like, you know, Nui Blanche has like the Scarborough version now for the past, maybe, I don't know, three, four years now, Um, Give and take COVID era, you know, in the West, there's a couple of things that are popping up that are city run. It's like, to me, I'm always thinking, well, are you engaging? Like, how are the people who've been doing this work all along really being taken up? And are we... Mm -hmm. Are we talking about the people who have been working as artists as artists within the context Mm -hmm. that they work in? So when I see like a lot of the cultural, like community based dance companies. So like the one that I grew up in, Scarborough Youth Caribbean Ensemble, um, there's a bunch of Tamil youth groups that are specifically for dance. Uh, Those places don't get called on to do performances at the AGO or to be part of like these like, you know, to animate like downtown or like uh, Dundas like,
1: Square and yeah, places or, like that, yeah,
0: exactly, or like cultural art spaces. They're not they're not picked up right. as as like a fine art. And I turn to those places. Like those are the types of places that I'm really interested in. Right. I don't know. I just find it funny that all of a sudden people are like, "Oh yeah, true. There are people in Scarborough. Like things are happening. It's like <laughs> actually, Scarborough gave you yeah. all that.
1: <laughs> like, exactly.
0: The West End gave you all that. You know, like all this <laughs> slang. Like
1: <laughs> absolutely." I've written about the Dawa Collective uh, recently because of the commemorative show uh, that Andrew Fatona curated at Ace Base Gallery, and mm-hmm. so that really brought me into the importance of these women and their collective, which was formerly called the Diasporic African Women's Art Collective. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, at the AGO, you organized a exhibition called The Feast, and I wondered if you could talk about that experience and maybe touch on what were some of the highs in organizing that and were there any lows Mm -hmm. in trying to pull that off or maybe, maybe the challenges, maybe lows is, is, is not the appropriate word, but what were some of the challenges in trying to pull something like that together, which was so extensive and collaborative.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'll stay away from the lows because honestly there are plenty <laughs> sure. and it took me a long time to kind of, So oftentimes like when you're doing these massive, you know, these large scale events or like performances or whatever, there's a lot of weight on you to, to get it right. And to ensure that you are speaking the language of all these different parties. And so it put a, um, a bit of a strain on me to like navigate all of the moving pieces with that. So there are a lot of things that were um, that were rough, but the feast started off. I would say the genesis from it really began in 2015. Uh, I started a group on WhatsApp that was was called Black Women Artists. And it started off as a group because at that time, I had just started thinking about art and working as an artist. And I Mm -hmm. realized that there were very few spaces where I can see the work of Black Canadian women artists um, or Black Caribbean women who were within Toronto to see their work. Mm -hmm. Also, I had very little insight on how to survive and work as an artist. And also, uh, visually, I didn't know how to start Enhancing like my visual literacy and seeing more things. And so I started this group just to start sharing what I was learning so I would share um, job calls I would share calls for submission and then every so often like once a month it started off as as like once a week and then it went to about once a month I would change like the display picture to a different artist and share an article that was written about that artist some more of their images and their website and it could be any artist just somebody that I might have just learned about and just wanted to continue growing the group and like growing like our literacy together Together, And it started with just 12 people. And then by 2019, it was pushing 100 people. Mm-hmm. And now it's almost 300 Black women and gender nonconforming people across Canada and some into the States that are part of this WhatsApp group. And it's very active. So, right. but by 2019 everyone we had just done this thing where people were like well let's introduce ourselves who's in this group I too didn't even really know because I would add people as their friend as they said their friends wanted to be in it so we started sharing photos and seeing faces and it was like the first time we kind of virtually met each other in that way and then folks were like let's let's meet and so Mm -hmm. at that time Julie Crooks had just curated the Micheline Thomas show at the AGO Mm -hmm. which was thought about at that time as being one of the first major contemporary art solo shows of a black woman artist in a, in the main gallery in the AGO it was a big deal. And people were talking about that right. quite a bit through that right. language and people in the group were really interested in going to see Mc- McLean Thomas talk her, her artist talk. And when we, when they reached out to the AGO, all the tickets were sold out. And I knew from working at the AGO that there are oftentimes the audience for these things are an audience of all white folks who have Mm -hmm. early access and VIP memberships or whatever. And so I wrote to Julie and to folks at the AGO. And I was like, is there any way that here's a group of black women artists? We're really excited to see the show. We'd love to hear McLean Thomas talk. Is there any way we'd be able to get a few tickets? And so Julie reached back and gave us uh, offered us a few tickets to be able to see the talk, mm-hmm. and then that began the conversation around how do we actually take up space within this institution that's just not <laughs> <laughs> just not seeing us at all. And so, because we were simultaneously talking about a space to meet, and then. I was in conversation about like where actually are all the black women within the AGO, within um, major contemporary galleries in Canada, the, the two ideas really came together. Right. And as part of the black women artists group, we formed an advisory committee and we started to plan the the feast. And when yes. we were working on planning it, I wanted to sort of um, slow down a bit because to me, it was very important that I don't, ever do something and behave as though this is the first time it's happening. So I wanted to look back and I was always looking in the Toronto archives and the Ontario archives. So I started to look into it and see like, what is the history of black women artists organizing in Canada? And that's when Mm -hmm. I came up learning about DAWA and the work that they had been doing. And I said that I think it was really important for us to be able to create a space to honor them. And what was crazy about it, which I knew, which told me that you know we're in the right direction, is that we had planned the feast. I can't remember the exact date it was, but say it was like January something, 2019. And the Dawa had begun their their tour of their work. I think it was 1989.
1: 89, uh, yeah.
0: January 30th. So it was almost 30 years to the date wow that um, that we were going to be doing this thing so that's sort of how it started and then it it created an opportunity for us to to rekindle the dawah members who hadn't spoken to each other for a while get them back together to see each other and for the broader group of black women artists to also see each other and for us to recognize the lineage that our work that we're doing now is stemmed off of so that's how it all kind of came together and um, became this really important moment, I think, for a lot of us.
1: Amazing. You have described your work as being concerned with creating, quote, the impossible image. What is an impossible image?
0: <laughs> um, at the time, I was doing a lot of research in like my family history and the history of carnival. And I realized that a lot of the things that we were um, needing to make to sort of intervene into historical records and archives that absented us was to Mm -hmm. create things that actually did not exist, that as archival documents were imagined and created anew in order for us to to visualize a particular type of presence within a history that rejected us or that Mm -hmm. decidedly put its vision elsewhere and so it started with a set of images that I did in I want to say 2016 which was called Six Company Battalion and it's a set of images I did of my mother and aunts wearing um, regalia from the war of 1812 and It was at the time, it was something that I did in response to a um, Basquiat exhibition where a group of black artists from the city were asked to like submit a proposal to think about a component of Basquiat's work. And I Mm -hmm. was really thinking about heroes and saints and thinking Mm -hmm. about uh, I had learned about my family history, um, fighting in the War of 1812 in order to essentially like have their freedom from being enslaved in the southern states. And so when I learned about that story and I learned about um, black loyalists being given land in in the Caribbean, in addition to Nova Scotia and its connection to my family, I was really interested in sort of reimagining what this could look like and distorting these ideas of like nation and, and heroism and and black like matriarchy and all these different pieces and it came together in this, um, this image. But for me, what was interesting about that and had me start to think about this, this idea, this impossible image, is that those images don't exist. They could not exist, right? Like, right. even if they could have been photographed at the time, women would not have been seen as, as heroes, particularly not Black women. And also there's an interesting question around, like, colonialism and the ways that Black people who needed to, needed to like, fight basically, for their freedom in this particular way through being loyal to the British crown, what, like, all those sort of um, conflicts mean and, like, how that shows up in, like, on the body and, and through my own way of seeing as, like, documenting, like, creating this image myself as, like, a mm-hmm. descendant of this. Like, none of these sort of stories and, like, components were meant to be able to be possible. So, right. so I started thinking about that as, like, the impossible image, the type of uh, fabulation, critical fabulation, as Hartman might say, yes,
1: or yes. Um,
0: as Toni Morrison might talk about, and as a necessary fiction, like all these things were so important for me to be able to claim a type of story, to position myself somewhere and to intervene into an archive that where so much of myself and people around me were, were absent. So it started with right. that. And now I think about it a little bit differently and I think about archives a lot differently and even those images, but that's sort of where um, this idea of how we can create an impossible image and why it may be important for us to do so now came from.
1: I want to ask what you're working on now and and what's coming up and if there's anything you'd like to share about your yeah. practice, where it's going. Yeah.
0: Well, I just finished school.
1: <laughs> Congratulations. Um, I... I saw that thanks
0: yeah it was mad <laughs>
1: like, yeah, so there's um, a book attached to it i understand that is in his... short uh short distribution but i hope to read it one day yeah
0: <laughs> yeah there's five copies because it was expensive <laughs> it was expensive yeah. as hell to produce and just about killed me but yes yeah. yeah, so we it, that's part of our curriculum we're supposed to produce a photo book or a monograph as right. a thesis so I combined it. So I i will say that's actually what I'm working on. I'm, I'm working on re-editing that book so that it could be more broadly distributed and getting an editor mm-hmm. to support me with that. And then I'm also working on, while I was in grad school, I, I, because I was away from Toronto, I started to have to think about more of the the like the essence of my work versus the place that my work comes from Mm -hmm. if that makes sense and so I started thinking a lot about yeah this question of the impossible image this like question of like surrealist spaces ways that we Mm -hmm. can imagine a different way of being together of 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 like understanding ourselves today in order to create a different future I've always been Mm -hmm. kind of struck on that And so that's sort of like the foundation of everything that I'm doing now. Like this idea of like, well, how do we see differently? How can we see what is already here that is maybe goes against the status quo through spirit worlds, through carnival worlds, through um, surrealism, through the body, stuff like that. So that's sort of where I'm at and the things I'm thinking about. Yeah.
1: And lastly, because I know you're someone who travels quite a bit you've gone to school outside of Toronto. I want to take up this notion of home. And I know that you've written about it being an ephemeral and sometimes elusive notion, but what is home to you and and where is home now for Anita Jordan?
0: (laughs) That's such a nice question. You know, I was living in the States for two years and I'm like, wow! Toronto really is it. After being in America, <laughs>
1: you missed it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, it's
0: right. like Toronto could do no wrong at this point, <laughs> but um, but it, of course it does because it's not it's not affordable anymore for me. Um, so right. because of that, and because like you know when I come back, I I stay with my mom in Scarborough. I really do have to think about that question. What is home for me? Um, Do I make it just based off of where I am? And I don't know. I'm not sure. I think um, Mm -hmm. I now have to think about home as maybe not even necessarily embodied in the way, like just where I am is home and certainly Mm -hmm. not structural, but more so like a decision. Like I have to actively decide that I am good at this moment where I am, that I'm safe. I have to make those decisions or find places or like something, things around me, people around me that can ensure that I do feel like safe and grounded. And I have to actively like decide that because since 2019, I've moved every like nine months or so since COVID and then next thing, then school and then back. And then, you know, so the idea of home has been something that, has sort of evaded me and I've had to turn to other ways of trying to understand it and making an, like making a decision that says like, I'm good here right now for, for now, you know? Paraspective of,
1: of locale or the geography. It's about how you feel about where you're at. It's an interesting way of thinking of it. Yeah. Lastly, first of all, thank you for this. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. What we're trying to do on the podcast is have the featured artists ask a question of the artist who will come up next in the series and so i wondered if you had any question could be about anything that we can pose to our next guest
0: okay okay let me let me think on that <laughs> um i want to ask them if they think hope is important yeah
1: the notion of hope
0: yeah just like as as like blanket as possible like Does the idea of hope feel like something that's important to you? Do we have to have hope in order to build a future? Like, is it necessary? Or is there something else? I don't know.
1: (laughs) Fascinating. Thank you for that. Anik. thank you so much for this. It's been a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Really great questions.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposovna, and Zachary Skola-Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Specker. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopawa Mumu.